Merry Christmas. If you will open your Bibles to Isaiah 52:13, we'll be reading uh, through that chapter and all the way through chapter 53 as well. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's find on, found on page 731. If you've been with us these past few Sundays, we've been looking at the songs of the servant, a servant of the Lord who is going to come and rescue his people. And the chapter we're about to look at is one of the best chapters in the Bible in all of Scripture to look at for what has happened on the cross, what the servant did to rescue his people. This is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The first disciples and apostles look back at it as this is the glory of God come to his people. And this is the heart of Christianity. Now, I have to be honest, this is a hard chapter to look at on Christmas morning. It's deep. It's emotional. It can be painful to look at. Um, and it usually probably should take weeks to study, but we have today to look at it. But at the same time, this works on Christmas Day because the reason why we celebrate Christmas is not just because of the birth of Christ, but because of his life and his work on the cross and his resurrection, his entire life put together that we can look at and say, joy to us, his creation. So let's, let's look at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 12. Sorry, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will drive the spoils with the strong." Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of Christmas morning, a day where we celebrate the birth of your Son, a Savior for your people. We pray this morning as we look at this text that we can see what the Savior has done in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection for us. We see the gift that you have given us this Christmas day, the greatest gift of all time, a perfect relationship with you and an everlasting one. We pray that this changes our hearts and molds us more into your creation, into the way it originally was supposed to be, and that we can continue to spread your glory and your peace and your love to everyone in this entire world. In your name, amen. A while back, I was kind of having a hard week. Um, I was stressed out. I was a little agitated, and maybe once or twice I, I took that stress or agitation out on my wife. Um, and later on in the week, um, after another hard day, I came home, I opened the door to our house, and sitting on our front table was like four Star Wars things. Now, if you don't know anything about me, I love Star Wars. So there was like a Star Wars lunchbox, a Star Wars poster, a Star Wars like trivia game, and I was getting excited. I was like, yes, I have presents. I'm looking at them. I'm looking at the lunchbox, and I'm getting excited. And as I'm getting excited about this Star Wars stuff that's now in my possession, uh, my wife comes into the room, and she goes, all right, guess what? Tonight, we're going to have a Star Wars night. We're going to play the Star Wars trivia game. We'll have some dinner. We can watch a Star Wars movie if you want. It's a whole night dedicated to Star Wars. And I, and I, was, in, I was so excited. I was having a blast. And what was cool to me was the fact that my wife was willing to give up uh, a night of her life, a, a, a free night that she could have had where, hey, this is what I want to do, or I, I would rather not do this. She's not a big Star Wars fan. She likes it for me. But she was willing to play a Star Wars trivia game that she knew she was going to lose for my benefit and, have, and let me be happy. And, and so we had a great night. But what was cool was actually a few days later, me reflecting back on it was the fact that my wife actually enjoyed that night. And it, it wasn't because of the Star Wars items themselves. She, she didn't find joy in the items. What she found joy in was the relationship with me and the joy that I got to experience. And, and that's sort of the motto that we have during Christmas time, especially the motto we kind of try to teach our kids is, it's better to give than receive. And, and why do we say that? It's because in, in the purest form, gift giving actually benefits both parties. It benefits the receiver because the receiver gets what they want, whether it's uh, a Bluetooth speaker or a Squirtle toy, um, a Pokemon. Um, it benefits both part. It benefits the receiver, and then it benefits the giver because the giver gets to enter into a relationship with the receiver and gets to see the joy on the receiver's face. That's why we struggle so much. Of I can't keep a secret because I'm so excited to see the look on the person's face when I give them the gift. Um, and this is why we celebrate Christmas, because the greatest gift giver of all time has come. And that greatest gift giver of all time is Jesus Christ, because he does give a gift in its purest form. True love, real love, is someone sacrificing everything for the benefit of another. Christ does all the work that needs to be done so that we have forgiveness. And Christ, being considered nothing and rejected, takes punishment and pain 
and does not protest, all in the midst so that he can spread his glory and forgiveness to a creation that he rescues. So as we first see in this passage that Christ is considered nothing and rejected, what are some of the first things, or what are some of the things that are highlighted in the Christmas story over and over and over again? Or better yet, why is the Christmas story so amazing? It's because it's the complete opposite of what we would expect. Jesus is, comes, and even though he's the servant of the Lord, even though he's the Son of God, he is born in a manger, probably filled with stinky animals, and it's a stable. Not only that, he's born of a woman that on outside appearances looked like she had an affair or at least had a relationship with a man before she was married to him. His first visitors, his first people to witness him are some common shepherds. And before long, he'll have to flee his hometown under the threat of death and head to Egypt. But what does verse 1 of chapter 53 says, see, uh, say? Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When we think of the arm of the Lord, we think of God's power and work. It's God's might. And when we think of that, we think of legions of angels, of these heavenly hosts, an army going to come to the world. It's the arm of the Lord. And not only that, but it says, and whom has it been revealed to? And we think it has to be revealed to the rulers, the kings, the princes, the people who are important, and yet it's not. It's revealed to some commoners, to some nobodies. And the arm of the Lord doesn't look like a legion of angels. It looks like a tiny baby boy. We get to, and, and the, the issue with the Christmas story is throughout Jesus' life, he starts off as a nobody, and what's worse is he moves on to someone who's rejected. The baby Jesus is at least visited by magi, but the adult Jesus will have even his closest friends betray him, reject him, and abandon him. And we have to be honest with ourselves, in a a situation considering, would I rather be a nobody or be someone to be rejected, it's a hard decision. I think I'd choose the nobody position. I'd rather just be in a corner and not have you recognize me. Jesus got both. Jesus both started as a nobody and ended up being rejected. As verse 3 says, he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And the struggle for us on Christmas morning is we know who Christ is. We know he is the Son of God. We know he's the Savior. We wouldn't want to reject him. We wouldn't want to be a part of the group that turns our back on him. But we have to be honest with ourselves that without the knowledge of Jesus' miracles, without the knowledge of Jesus' work on the cross, we would reject him as well. We wouldn't be giving gifts to each other on a day dedicated to a nobody who was rejected. And Jesus was not only seen as a nobody, but here's the most important fact of all. He chose the status as a nobody. He could have exalted himself. But he instead, as the passage says, is a servant who acted wisely and chose to have the appearance of nothing. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who deserved all the glory and honor and power, took on a servant's role. 
as it says in Mark, is he came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. And what do we do? We actually, how do we typically approach life? We typically do the opposite than what Jesus does. And we typically try to present ourselves as a somebody. And it could be something as simple as a lot of us have either family in town for the holidays, and, and it could be something as simple as comparing our family to another person's family or our family within our family, where I look at a family member and I go, at least I take care of my finances and I don't have credit card debt. Um, or it could be raising kids. You know, when we have kids, I'm not going to let them be on their iPad all day. We constantly compare ourselves to other people and try to present ourselves as better. And maybe it's not with your family. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's, hey, look at my job title or look at my finances. Maybe it's your friends. Look how many people are around me. Look how many people I have relationships with. Or it could be community service. Look at the social justice issue that I pioneer. Christ is the one who comes and says, I will take on the role of a servant. I will choose to make myself nothing to lift up my people. And typically, we try to do the opposite. God is the one who's supposed to present himself as holy and majesty, as the one who should be glorified and say to us, bow down and worship me and look at my glory, and yet he doesn't. And we are the ones who are actually the servants of God who should be bowing down and saying, only by the grace of God go I. And the thing with the, with the story of Christmas is it's, it's only going to get worse from here for Jesus. He goes on from nothingness to being rejected to finally the cross. To, as the passage says, disfigurement to beyond where his appearance does not look like man anymore. So he ends up taking our, pro, taking our punishment and our pain, and he doesn't protest in the process. And if these are some of the best chapters in the Bible for pointing to the heart of Christianity, why is it so difficult to read? Shouldn't we simply be rejoicing? We'll look back at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. These are, this is a part of the Scripture where we recognize it because it's in our songs, it's in our language. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is that so difficult to read? It's because the blame falls on us, and someone else took it for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And we have to admit, I've gone astray. I've turned my own way. I've done what I've wanted. And the reason why we struggle so much with this truth is because we either refuse to acknowledge the seriousness of our sin or we can't bear what we consider a debt to God. Sin is so serious because it's man substituting himself for the place of God. God gives us his word. He gives us, he gives us his commands and says, you need to obey them. You need to obey them fully. And yet we say, I'd rather make my own way. I'd rather rebel against the Lord. I'd rather go my own way. When you replace God for yourself, 
you are declaring your rebellion of him. You are declaring, I deserve the throne. And some of us might be here saying, I admit that I'm not perfect. I admit that at times I've sinned, I've messed up. But I haven't, I haven't committed the big sins. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. The Lord himself says in his word that if you stumble at, at one little part of his law, you are accountable to all of it. A king cannot allow a rebel to stay in his kingdom. God will not allow us to let or allow us to attempt to be our own kings. We are guilty of a rebellion and we deserve to be shut out of his kingdom. And there's one way to say that that we are spiritually bankrupt. And I apologize, but I'm going to talk about business this morning on Christmas morning. Um, and when a business is struggling in the financial world, um, maybe there's a lot of debt or they're not making quite a profit, um, they have a few options to solve this problem. And two of those options is they can either declare Chapter 7 bankruptcy or Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, Chapter 11 bankruptcy, this is a bankruptcy in which um, a company, again, straddled with debt, maybe given enough time, will become profitable again. If it just gives it enough time, it can improve on its own and will be able to become a good company again. And a good example of this are the airlines. Um, United Airlines, um, American Airlines have all gone through Chapter 11 bankruptcy and come out fine. We still see them around. They're still profitable. They're still, still flying. The other example is Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And this is a bankruptcy where the business is at the end of its financial rope. There's no hope for it. There's no way it's going to make a profit anymore. Uh, a company like this we can think of as Blockbuster. You don't see those anymore. Okay. For you little ones in the audience, you actually didn't have Netflix. You had to go and get a movie at a store, and sometimes it wasn't there. That's Blockbuster. Um, so no hope. So the question for us is if we are spiritually bankrupt, which bankrupt are we? Are we chapter 11 bankrupt that given enough time, I, I know I'm not perfect, I know I can improve, through the rest of my life I will just work to be harder, I'll work to get better, I can become a, a good person again. Or are we chapter 7 bankrupt that there's no good in us, there's too much guilt, there's too much sin, there's no hope for us to be in a relationship with God by our own works. And to be honest with you, there's the right answer. We are chapter 7 bankrupt. There's nothing we can do on our own to become in a perfect relationship with God again. And it's terrifying, and it kills us. And what's interesting is where we find this passage in Scripture. And actually, Isaiah is preaching not necessarily just to us, but also to the people of Israel. Isaiah is prophesizing to the nation of Israel that is currently in exile away from their homeland. They were taken captive by their enemies, the Babylonians. Now, as they are in exile, Isaiah writes about why they're in exile, why they were sent away. And he says it's because of their sins. And one of the sins they struggled with was pride. Pride of their wealth, pride of their armies, pride of the idols that they made, that they put before God. So the point of this exile of being under the, captive, uh, the captivity of the Babylonians is for them to turn their face back to God and begin to worship him again and serve him alone. They are supposed to be a purified nation, a nation of priests, a holy nation. 
But even Isaiah recognizes and prophesizes that Israel, the nation, will still not be a pure nation after the exile. The people will still sin and still be disqualified from being in a relationship with God. And the only way that Isaiah points to for the people to be in a relationship with God, with a perfect relationship with God, is through a perfect righteous servant taking the debt of a spiritually bankrupt people. And Jesus, at the end of his life, even though he lived a perfect life, will be crushed on the cross. And this is the heart of Christianity, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. Jesus, both through his obedience and death, took all our sins on himself and paid the debt that we owed for our sins to the righteous justice of God. God is substituting himself in the place of man. Man so often wants to take God's place, and we have no right to the throne. But God, who has every right to the throne, and in no obligation, no requirement to switch places with us, chooses to do that. God accepted the penalties that belong to man alone. And because of this substitution, God now sees us as he sees Christ, as perfect, as righteous, as accepted, as being able to be in relationship. And what's beautiful is we don't have to declare chapter 7 bankruptcy. We don't have to say, give me enough time, God, and I'll become good. But not only that, we don't have to say, I'm stuck in chapter 7 with debt and I'm finished. Because Jesus actually takes on our spiritual debt and gives us his spiritual wealth. And this is the most freeing thing of all, is that we don't owe God anything in return other than a relationship. And this is the greatest gift of all. It's not a debt. It's not a loan to be paid back, but it's a gift. And it's a gift in its purest form, in its purest love, is Jesus doing all the sacrifice, all the work on our behalf, presents it to us and says, this is a gift for you. And us saying, you're right, I am bankrupt. I am, I am, I do not deserve to be in your presence. Say, please forgive me. And we get to accept the gift of his righteousness, of Christ taking on our spiritual debt and laying it on himself. And this is a gift that none of us, none of us could have ever imagined, none of us could have asked for, and none of us would have ever expected. What a Merry Christmas! What an amazing Christmas, a gift that we didn't ask for, that has been given to us, and that we can in no way or under any obligation pay back. And a lot of times this can seem like the end of the story. Christ's life, Christ's birth, Christ's death. He died on the cross for our sins, and now we get to be in a relationship with God. But what happens to the greatest gift giver of all time? It's not just that Christ gave us everything, but before him, as the passage said, Christ will get a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils among the strong. This is Christ's resurrection. His birth, life, death, and resurrection. Death is not just it, but it is everlasting life with the Father. God's justice has been satisfied, and there will be rewards. There will be the spoils of victory that Christ gives to everyone who is in his kingdom. 
And Christ, the perfect servant, now sits at the right hand of God the Father and is working on restoring creation. And a lot of times we look at the cross and we say, we're saved, and that's it. But the Bible does not move us from sin to salvation, but actually from creation to renewal, to recreation, to a new creation. And the resurrection points us to that, to the furthering of God's kingdom and God's glory. And it's not just Christ coming to life, but it's actually Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection of the new kingdom, that one day we will be raised like Christ. And this is so important to us, that everything damaged, everything broken, everything sinful, every relationship that you have that's with broken people that might be hurting you right now, will be made clean, will be perfect. You will be perfect. Your relationships will be perfect. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. We get to see the resurrection in the light of Christ. And the resurrection points us to the fact that we can rejoice on Christmas Day, not just because our relationship with God has been made perfect, but because God is pointing us to the eternal hope that everything will be made perfect. That victory has come through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the joy that we feel at the birth of the Savior, we can feel at Easter when we remember the resurrection. And it's the joy that we actually get to experience every Sunday morning that we come together and worship our Lord. Sunday is not just given to us as a day of rest, but it's actually given us to a day of celebration and rejoicing, of remembering the fact that we have a perfect relationship with God and that he's coming to restore his creation, that he's coming to spread his glory, to join Christ in spreading the restoration of this world, to spread his work, his love, his glory through all creation. And every week, we get to be men and women who come together forming a new community, celebrating our union with Christ. And a lot of times in Christianity, we can think of it as an individual relationship between me and God. It's just me and God, me and God. And that's true. You do have an individual relationship with God, but it's more than that. We get to be in a relationship with each other. We get to be called a family of God. We are a family. You are my brothers and sisters. Merry Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas together as a family. How awesome is that? I mean, how, I mean right now it's just me and my wife at home, but I get to come, home, come here on Christmas morning and celebrate Christmas with you. Merry Christmas. And it doesn't have to be just this Christmas. It doesn't have to be just December 25th. Every Sunday we get to come together and I get to look at you and you get to look at me and we get to say we're family. We get to say that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and even though this world's broken, even though sometimes it's hard, I get to come here on Sunday morning and celebrate with you and be joyful. Not feel in pain, but instead get to point to an eternal hope where I don't have to feel pain anymore. And that's an amazing, glorious thing. I'm so thankful to be in this family, and I hope you are too. I hope you come every Sunday morning feeling the joy of Christmas, being able to say Merry Christmas, Happy Easter, and a Happy Sabbath. 
I'm glad to enter into a family relationship with you. And I want to conclude with the most important part of this passage. That if you want to be a part of this family, I encourage you to first start with your relationship with Christ. If you've never been in a relationship with Christ in which you admit that you are a sinner, that you are imperfect, that God is perfect and you need to be in a relationship with Him and want to be in His kingdom, admit your sins and say, I look to Christ to pay the punishment that I could not pay. And say, God, I want to strive to do your will. And if you have done that, let me encourage you to come and be a part of a community. Be a part of a community that celebrates the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the birth of Christ, the joy of our Savior, and enter into fellowship with each other. Don't just come on Sunday morning and leave, but be a part of the community spreading the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've done, not only in our individual lives, not only in the community that we have right here at Faith Presbyterian Church, but in the entire world. The fact that you are working to spread your glory and your power throughout all creation so that one day it will be restored to its original glory. And we thank you for everything that you have done on the cross for our sins, that you have paid a punishment that we could never pay, and that we get to celebrate Christmas, Easter, and your resurrection every Sunday morning with each other in a community. We pray that this is a community that spreads your glory and your love, not only to each other, but the whole world. And we pray that we go out from here celebrating and worshiping you. In your name, amen. We are going to continue with the hymn, Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People, hymn number 197. It's a little bit of a funny tune, so just listen for it, and you'll get used to it.
Hear this blessing from the Lord this Christmas morning. May you be blessed by the Lord through Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life, as you are sent with good news for the lost sheep. For beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Merry Christmas.